We are talking this morning about the Old Testament minor prophet, Obadiah. And if there was ever a Sunday where you had good reason to use the table of contents, it would be this Sunday, because Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. So if you need the table of contents, no one is going to look down on you or judge you if you're reading out of my version of the ESV. Obadiah is on page 772. That may not help you. But it may get you in the ballpark. Shortest book in the Old Testament. There are three books in the New Testament shorter than Obadiah. The book of Philemon is shorter. Philemon has more verses, but the verses are shorter. So the actual book is shorter. Second John and Third John are also shorter. But Obadiah is the shortest in the Old Testament. He is the minorest of the minor prophets. Where does he fit in Old Testament history? It's helpful for me. And several of you have shared with me over the last few weeks that it's helpful for you to put these guys on some sort of timeline so we can make sense of who they're talking to and what they're talking about. So here's the timeline we would put up. He comes right after the Babylonian exile of Judah in 586 B.C. And so our history of Israel looks like this. We start with the the unified kingdom that's under Saul, then David, then Solomon, Then Rehoboam and Jeroboam split the nation of Israel in two. Israel is in the north and Judah is in the south. Those two nations sort of continue uh, for many decades and centuries. And sometimes they're friends and sometimes they fight and sometimes they just ignore each other. But eventually the Assyrian Empire came, marched against the northern kingdom of Israel and took those people into exile. That was about 722 B.C. And then a little while later, the Babylonian Empire came and marched on the southern kingdom of Judah, conquered Jerusalem, and took those people into exile. And we would put Obadiah right about here at the end of this timeline. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been taken into exile, and the southern kingdom of Judah has already been taken into exile, and Obadiah pops into the storyline right here. Obadiah is a little bit different than all of the other minor prophets, and this is why he's different. Obadiah's message is directed not to Israel, not to Judah, but to the Edomites. The things that he has to say are directed to, directly to, God's enemies known as the Edomites. Now, when I say Edomites, you guys are saying, I'm doing good enough to keep track of these two kingdoms in a civil war What in the world is an Edomite? Where do these people come from? So I'm going to put a map up just so you can sort of make sense of this visually. Up in the north, that purple shade is Israel. And that top orange circle just says this is the northern kingdom of Israel. Down in the south, this little light blue section, you see Judah is circled. And so the northern kingdom of Israel, the capital was Samaria. Down south... The capital of Judah was Jerusalem. And then down to the bottom, it's just barely showing on this map, southeast of Judah was a nation known as Edom. Right here on the border with the Arabian Desert, they actually controlled a decent amount of territory. And they're just sort of like neighbors to the southern kingdom of Judah. And here's this prophet, Obadiah, not sent to God's people in Israel, Not sent to talk to God's people in Judah, but sent to talk to the Edomites. The thing you need to understand about the Edomites in Judah is that they were the bitterest of rivals. I thought this week, how could I I explain to my people how much 
the people of Judah hated the Edomites and vice versa. I thought maybe I could talk about high school rivalries, crosstown rivalries. You know, you think about I went to this school and you went to that school and I, I hate those guys. I hate those. They're the worst. And I thought, no, that really doesn't do it justice. And I thought maybe college football is closer. Like rivalries with college football where you think, man, I pull for this team and we hate those guys. And you think about some of the rivalries where teams really just despise each other and fans despise each other. And you hear crazy stories about people marrying across rivalry lines and you get like kicked out of the family. Like go, pull for that team if you want to marry that girl. And I thought, no, no, that's not, that's not really enough. I thought, what about the Hatfields and McCoys? I watched a TV show, documentary, whatever it was the other day on Hatfields and McCoys and the rivalry and the feuding between these families that started off with something pretty small and then it just escalates and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I thought, we're kind of getting closer with Hatfields and McCoys here. But what we're talking about between Judah and Edom is Hatfields and McCoys on a national level. And I'm not going to tell you the whole story. I gave you all those scripture verses on the front page of your notes. If you want to dig into it, you can dig into it. Let me just give you the big picture overview of why these peoples hated each other. It all goes back to Genesis 25 and 27 when a guy named Isaac has sons and they're twins and their names are Jacob and Esau. Jacob eventually becomes Israel. In fact, his name is changed to Israel because the nation of Israel comes from him. So you got Jacob, and then you got this other brother, Esau. And they hate each other from the very beginning. The Bible describes that there's a struggle in the womb between these brothers. The Bible describes deception and lying involving parents and people taking sides. It involves people taking advantage of each other. You get to the end of their story, and there's a little bit of a, maybe we'd call it a ceasefire, but it's certainly not a truce, and it's certainly not a good relationship. And everything that follows from these two brothers, rivals, and these two nations that come from these brothers is the worst kind of conflict that you can ever imagine. Just a few examples of what you read in the Old Testament. You read about these two nations refusing to help each other when the other really needs help. When the Hebrews were coming out of Egypt and all they wanted was to pass through the land of Edom and Moses said, we won't drink your water, we won't eat your animals. If we, if we take any water from your wells, we'll pay for it. We just need safe passage. And instead of allowing their long-lost cousins to pass through, Edom sent an army and said, you better march around. The rivalry continues between the two. They fought battles that turned into wars. They held grudges for centuries about various things. We read in the Old Testament that there were times where they sold each other into slavery They totally betrayed each other in allowing other nations to come and and to steal their their cousins, so to speak, and to to sell the other into slavery. They were involved in that. They killed each other in the most horrific ways. And sometimes it wasn't just Edom who did it, but it was Israel who did it. There was one battle you can read about in the Old Testament where Israel won the the battle. They killed 10,000 Edomites in a battle. Then they rounded up another 10,000, took them up a hill, and pushed them off the edge of the cliff. 
This is the kind of crazy stuff that just escalated and escalated over time. And nobody forgot about all of these things that happened. And the culminating event is sort of hinted at in the Bible, but it's attested to outside of the Bible. It happened in about the year 593 B.C., and this is what happened. There was a new big boy on the block in the Middle East, and the big boy's name was Babylon. Babylon is just swallowing up kingdoms one after another, conquering cities one after another. And here's the southern kingdom of Judah, sort of nervous, and here's the nation of Edom, sort of nervous, and Edom says, we need to do something. Edom sends a delegation of men to Judah, to Jerusalem. And this delegation of men show up in Jerusalem and they say, 593 B.C., look, you know Babylon's going to come for us sooner or later. We need to team up. I know that we're rivals. I know that things have not been good between us. But we need each other. They're bigger than us. They're badder than us. If we don't stand together, we're both going to fall. And the, the leaders in Jerusalem said, you know, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Let's come up with a treaty. Let's come up with a, a deal, an agreement. And they all felt good about it. Until 586 B.C. when Babylon marched against Judah. And Judah turned to Edom and said, come on, this is why we made the deal. And Edom said, we're not coming. They double-crossed them. Not only did they just allow Babylon to march through Jerusalem, but they celebrated when Babylon marched through Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar conquered the city. He took the people into exile. And that's when God calls a man named Obadiah to serve as a prophet, not to his people who had been taken into exile, but to the Edomites who had betrayed their cousins. If you wanted to summarize Obadiah, you would say this, Obadiah is a book about God's enemies. It's a book about his enemies. And I don't want to pause here for too long, but I do just want to pause and let that fall on your ears and your mind and your heart. Before we go any further in the book of Obadiah, you've got to come to grips with the fact that God has enemies. He has enemies. There are people on this earth with whom he is angry. There are people on this earth, and we'll talk more about it this morning, who stand in opposition to God. They're not his friends. They're not neutral. They're his enemies. And God's angry with these people, and God has promised judgment for these people. That flies in the face of the popular conception of God that I hear every day and you hear every day. This idea that God is just some cosmic grandpa up in the sky, and he's just smitten with us because we're such great people. And, and he's got all our pictures on his, on his refrigerator, and he's just so proud of who we are. And he says, oh, look, these are my people. They're just the greatest. They're so sweet. And the Bible comes along and confronts that idea and says, you know what? That's not the case. Humanity, apart from God's grace, is at enmity with God. We are his enemies, and he's angry with those who stand as his enemies. That's the big idea of Obadiah. God has enemies, and he sent this prophet to deliver this message to some of those enemies in Edom. What do we know about Obadiah the man? To be honest, we don't know much. His name means servant of Yahweh. Some Bible scholars think that wasn't even his name. 
it was more like a nickname. It was more like a title. He is Yahweh's servant, and so he went by this name. Other Bible scholars say, no, that was, that was probably his given name. You can flip a coin and pick whatever you like. Other than that, we know nothing about his life. We don't know his pedigree. We don't know his religious training uh, that he did or did not receive. We don't know what his profession was. We don't know about his parents. All we know is that God sent this man to take this message to his enemies in Edom. The question then becomes, what was the message? What did he have to say to God's enemies? We're going to try to summarize it in four simple ideas. Number one, God hates those who are proud. Obadiah wants the Edomites to understand that God hates people who are proud. You see this throughout the scriptures. Pride is an abomination to God. It's not a small thing like we make it out to be in our culture, or even at times we make it out to be a noble thing. The Bible does not think your pride is noble in any way, shape, or form. The Bible says pride, your pride, makes you an enemy of God. God hates it. Look what Obadiah says at the very beginning here. There's only one chapter. Look what he says in verse 3 and 4 to the Edomites. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. He mentions that the the Edomites live in the clefts of the rock. You can get online, you can type in Edom or the Edomites, and you can just hit Google Images, and you can find all sorts of pictures that look like this. The Edomites lived in not the prettiest place in the world, kind of looked like West Texas with lots of hills and crags and mountains. And they decided their best bet was to just build their homes and their temples and their government buildings and everything right into the sides of these mountains. And you can see all kinds of amazing uh, ruins that, that you can visit today where they built these structures right into the sides of the hills. And the terrain was rough and it was rugged. And I put this picture on the right to sort of show you to get to many of these cities that they carved into the to the rock, you had to go through these narrow, winding canyons. And some military experts say that these cities were so fortified that an army of 12 men could stand in some of these passes and hold off an entire uh, uh, conquering army. Because the whole army, it didn't matter how big they were, they had to funnel right down these narrow canyons. And just a few men standing shoulder to shoulder could keep an entire force out. And the Edomites knew this. They knew how how strong their fortifications were. And they said to themselves, who's going to conquer us? Who's going to conquer us? Look at Jerusalem right out there in in the, the nice, soft, rolling hills. Anyone could march an army against Jerusalem. How are you going to march an army against us? No one can conquer us. And the Lord says to these people, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Reminds me a little bit of a story from World War II. The French had suffered the horrors of World War I, 
And they were a little bit antsy that Germany might come knocking on their door someday. So after World War I, the French spent about 10 years building a a line of fortifications. You can see it on this map as the solid red line. And it goes all the way across the border that France shares with Germany. The chief construction officer over this project was named Andre Maginot, and so they called it the Maginot Line. And they spent 10 years, amazing fortifications, amazing systems built under the mountains and places for guns and cannons and tanks and trains to roll and to move supplies. And they said, if the Germans ever come marching again, we have this barrier, we have this defense. They poured all of these resources into it. And what they feared started to happen. Hitler started to ramp up the German army. And the French sat back and said, it's okay. Don't worry about it. We have the Maginot Line. Have you seen that thing? Nobody's getting past that. It took 10 years to build this system of fortifications. And it took all of about two weeks for Germany to invade Belgium and walk right around it. They thought to themselves, we're safe. We're secure. They're not going to march right through here. They were no different than the Edomites who looked at their man-made fortifications and their sort of naturally constructed defenses and said, who in the world could ever conquer us here? And God wants these people to know your pride is a stench to me. It's offensive and it makes you my enemies. Second part of his, his message, Obadiah's message, is this. God hates those who oppose his people. He hates those who stand in opposition to his people. You say, well, it kind of sounds like he's playing favorites. That's exactly what he's doing. Israel wasn't this great nation. Judah wasn't this great nation that earned God's favor, but God's favor was graciously poured out upon these people. And what you see throughout the Old Testament is that God is against those who oppose his people. Look what we read in Obadiah, verse 10 and 11. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Remember, the prophet is speaking to the Edomites. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob... Shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. And the Edomites heard that and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We didn't attack Judah. What do you mean you're going to come at us for the violence? We weren't the army that slaughtered all the people in Jerusalem and leveled the temple to the ground. We didn't do that. Verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof, the day when strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You let it happen. You stood by and celebrated. You double-crossed your brother Jacob when the Babylonians came marching against them. You might as well be guilty of the violence yourself. You opposed them. You thought that your life was more valuable than theirs. You thought it was worth double-crossing your brother so that they would be conquered and you might get a leg up. You say, well, this sounds like a very Old Testament idea that God would oppose people who stand against his people. It is an Old Testament idea, and it's also a New Testament idea. When the resurrected Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, 
one of the first things he said to him is, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? To which Saul thought, I don't know who you are. I'm persecuting Christians. But from Jesus' perspective, to persecute his people is exactly the same as persecuting him. Make yourself an enemy of the church. You're now an enemy of Jesus. Paul says the exact same thing to the church in Corinth. Look at this verse in 1 Corinthians 3.17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You do something that damages, that hurts, that hinders, that comes against God's people, the church, the temple of his Holy Spirit. And Paul just says very plainly, God's going to destroy you. He's the enemy with those who stand against his people. He hates those who oppose his people. Third part of Obadiah's message, God promises justice. He promises justice to his enemies. Look at verse 15. The prophet says, The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Just what you did is going to come right back on top of you, is what the Lord says through Obadiah to the Edomites. The irony of history is, or the reality of history, is that it happened. King Nebuchadnezzar marched against Judah in 586. He conquered Jerusalem. He took the people into exile. He did not march against the Edomites. But you fast forward to the very last Babylonian king, Nabonidus. He did march against the Edomites. He got his armies all the way in, down those little valleys. He found a way to conquer these people. He defeated them. He subjected them to slavery. And he sent some of them into exile. What Obadiah promised would happen, happened. And Obadiah is not only talking to the Edomites here, but he's sort of widening the stream to say, look, this is for all the nations. Edomite, Moabite, Ammonite, Philistine, Syrian, any of these people, you need to understand that God will bring justice to you. He will right all of the wrongs. And the last part of Obadiah's message is this, God will not forget his people. He will not forget his people. We won't read the last verses, but I just want you to look at them, and I want you to notice all the, the geography places, all the terms, all the proper nouns in 19, 20, and 21. He talks about the Negeb and Mount Esau and the Shephelah and the land of the Philistines and Ephraim and Samaria, Benjamin, Gilead, the Canaanites, the land of the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath, Jerusalem, the Sepharad, the Negeb, Mount Zion, Mount Esau, all these places, I don't need to put them all up on a map. This is what Obadiah is saying when you figure out where all these places are located. All of God's people who he sent into exile are going to be brought back to the land. He didn't forget you. He's going to bring you back. You're going to possess the promised land, and you're going to possess everything around the promised land. He's going to give you more when you come back than what you actually had when he sent you into exile. And if you could, Parker, just put up the slide again with the timeline of where Obadiah falls at the end of this long history of Israel. Think about where he falls. These people have been kicked out of their land. They're refugees in a foreign country. Their temple has been flattened. They feel like God has completely abandon them. And at the end of this book, 
Obadiah speaking to the Edomites, he makes this promise. God's not going to forget his people. He's punished them and he sent them into exile, but he's going to bring them back. And when he brings them back, he's going to bless them beyond what they had experienced before the exile. That's the message. And if you're a, a, a Judean exile living in Babylon, and you hear that there's a prophet named Obadiah who went to preach to the Edomites, and this is what he said, you listen to this message and you say, man, that's really good news. That's really good news. Because the Edomites double-crossed us. They betrayed us. We're here partly because of them. And God is going to make it right. And most importantly, God has not forgotten us. We're suffering, but he has not forgotten us. It was good news for these people. The question is, what do we do with it? This ancient, ancient letter, this short letter from a prophet to Edom, how do we apply it to our lives? Let me give you a few suggestions. Number one, you've got to start by acknowledging that left to ourselves, we are enemies of God. We're the enemies. Not just because we're Edomites or Mexican-Americans or Native Americans or we're from this nation or that nation or because our skin color is not exactly ethnically Jewish or whatever. We're God's enemies because we're sinners. And it's one thing to look at the Bible and to read a book like Obadiah and to say, God is angry with those people. It's another thing entirely to look in the mirror and to realize, left to myself, God is angry with me. My sin makes me an enemy of God. Look how the Apostle Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's writing to a church, to a bunch of Christians, a bunch of Jesus followers. And he says, this is what you used to be like. Dead in your trespasses and sins. You're following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says this is you apart from God's grace in your life. It's not just the Edomites that have a problem being God's enemy. It's you and I that have a problem being God's enemy. Left to ourselves apart from his grace, by nature we are children of wrath. We're his enemies. You say, well, I know I'm not perfect. It's worse than that. It's worse than just not being perfect. You say, well, I know I've made some mistakes. It's worse than that. You say, well, I'm not particularly ashamed of my past. It doesn't matter if you're ashamed of it or not ashamed of it. You say, well, I don't have a criminal record. None of that matters. By yourself, apart from God's grace, you're an enemy of God. Until you get that in your brain, you're not ready to hear anything about Jesus. Nothing. The fact that Jesus would come and suffer and teach and die and heal and rise from the dead and do everything that he did, it makes absolutely no sense until you understand, I am God's enemy, left to myself. I'm his enemy. So we start with that acknowledgement. This is not just an Edomite problem, this is an us problem. Secondly, we believe Jesus died for us while we were God's enemies. And this is the greatest news you've ever heard in your life. And I'll just tell you right now, it played out, when you think about the book of Obadiah, it played out in the most 
remarkable way. When I tell it to you, you're going to say, that's too good to be true. There's no way it could have happened exactly just like that. But it's how it happened. Look what Paul says in Romans 5. I gave you verse 8 and 10. He says, God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, children of wrath, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Here's how it all played out. I told you that Nebuchadnezzar in 586 marched against Judah. He conquered Jerusalem. He took him into exile. Fast forward to the the final Babylonian king, Nabonidus. He marches against, among a number of other nations, Edom. And he hauls those people into exile. He conquers them. But a few of the people stayed in Edom, in that land. And if you just go back and read ancient historical accounts, even some of the things you read about in the Bible, these people that lived in this place... Sometimes they're called Edomites. Sometimes they're called the people of Seir, S-E-I-R, same place. Sometimes they're called Edomians. Sometimes they're called Nabataeans. All these words in the Bible, sort of like saying someone's from Odessa or they're from West Texas or they're from the Permian Basin. We use all of those different terms to describe someone here. So you got this group of people, the Edomites, the Edomians, the Nabataeans. And if you keep going forward far enough in history, you meet a line of kings. We kind of say kings tongue-in-cheek because they called themselves kings, but they weren't really kings. It's a group of kings, you may have heard of them, known as the Herodian dynasty. And they end up ruling over not just their little area, Edomia or Edom. They end up actually ruling over Jerusalem and what we would call Judah. They're under the Romans. And Caesar, of course, is looking over their shoulder, approving every decision, making sure they don't get out of line. Call yourself what you want. We all know who's in charge, and what they wanted to call themselves were kings. So, for example, you read in the opening chapters of the New Testament about a king named Herod. We know him as Herod the Great. And he orders the slaughter of a bunch of babies in a village in Bethlehem. Why would he do something like that? Well, one, because he heard that there was a king born in that village and he wanted those babies dead. He wanted to eliminate the threat. But behind that decision, there's a whole lot of history. It goes all the way back to Jacob and Esau, to Israel and Edom, fighting it out over birthrights, holding grudges through the centuries, throwing each other off cliffs, killing each other in battle, selling each other into slavery, double-crossing each other to the Babylonians. All of that history goes into it. And Herod the Great, this Edomite, quote-unquote, king, says, kill the babies. And you have just one more chapter in this ancient, ancient rivalry. You fast-forward just a little bit more. Herod the Great is gone, but there's a new Herod. The next Herod in line, and we know him as Herod Antipas, another quote-unquote Edomite king. Herod Antipas is weak. He's so weak that he's threatened by a prophet. A man out in the wilderness wearing camel's hair, eating bugs, saying things like, you shouldn't be married to the woman you're married to because we all know that's your brother's wife. 
So he throws him in prison and he locks him up. And then one day in a drunken stupor to show off in front of all his friends, he makes good on a check that he wrote with his mouth and he chops the head off of the very last Jewish prophet, John the Baptist. Another chapter in the rivalry. There also comes a day in the New Testament where this same Herod, Herod Antipas, finds himself in Jerusalem about the time of the Passover, and they bring to him another prophet, a prophet that he's heard about, a prophet that has been doing incredible miracles. And they bring him before this Herod, and all Herod wants to do is make Jesus do tricks. Do a trick. Do a miracle. Do a sign. And more than likely, in a drunken stupor, he allows Jesus to be crucified. And you say, wait a minute. It's like I've heard that story before. It's like I've heard about an Edomite king and his people standing idly by when a foreign nation came and killed people in Jerusalem. It's the exact same story. you got this Edomite king, puppet king, thinking that he really controls something, thinking that he's really something, very proud, very arrogant, very boastful, standing against the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, and standing by while he's crucified. And you look at that development and you say, how can, what are the odds? Well, there are no odds. That was the plan. It played out exactly like God wanted it to. And the Apostle Paul explains it. And as he explains it, he doesn't blame Herod. He doesn't pin it on the Edomites. He doesn't say, this is just another chapter in this age-old feud between these peoples. He says, God did this for you while you were his enemies. You understand that the pages of history are filled with stories of nation fighting against nation, kingdom fighting against kingdom, king and ruler and Caesar and whatever, looking for revenge against their enemies. The pages of history are filled with that stuff. The pages of the New Testament tell a different story. In some senses, it's the same story, but in some senses, it's a different story. And the pages of the New Testament tell you the story of God sending His Son not to seek vengeance on his enemies, but to die for them. We're the enemies. Not Herod, not just the Edomites, not just those bad people, me and you. And God sends his son to die for us while we were still his enemies. The last thing we take away, the last thought of application is this. We must persist in humble repentance. Our calling is to persist in humble repentance. Let me explain what I mean. Obadiah is unique. It's unique because it's the only book in the Bible not addressed to God's people. When we talk about Jonah, Jonah was sent to a foreign nation, but the book itself is written for God's people to read about and think about. This book, this message directed to God's enemies the Edomites. And in this book, God says to the Edomites, this is what I hate. This is what makes you my enemy, your pride and your standing against my people. That puts you and I at odds. 
The implication of that is if we don't want to be God's enemies and live, in, live as God's enemies, we ought to probably do the opposite of what he describes in Obadiah. We ought to make sure we humble ourselves and we don't stand in opposition to God's people. And lo and behold, if you search around and you dig around in the Old Testament, you find plenty of passages that say we ought to do exactly that. For example, this passage in 2 Chronicles 7.14. You know this passage. This is God talking to Solomon. This is God saying to Solomon, this is what I want you guys to do. You're my people, and this is what I want you to do. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, don't be proud. Humble yourself. Seek my face and turn from your wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. I hear way too many people wish this verse on the United States of America. I was in a group of pastors just this week after I had finished my message and already planned to say it. And one of the pastors stood up after a long list of complaints and said, Oh, our country, we just need to go back to Second Chronicles 7.14. Why don't we stop wishing it on our country and why don't we start living it in our homes? Why don't we stop wishing it on people who don't pretend to fear God and why don't we start doing it in our churches? This is what God wants from his people. Humble yourself. Pray. Seek God's face. Seek to know him as he truly is and as he's revealed himself. This is what God wants from his people. It's the same idea spelled out in the New Testament in a passage like Hebrews chapter 10. If we go on sinning deliberately, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Listen, you and I stand in a unique place in human history. We have the whole counsel of God's word. We have the record of how he has dealt with nations how he's blessed nations, how he's punished nations. We have the full revelation of God sending his son, Jesus, to die for us while we were his enemies. We have this whole council, and the author of Hebrews is saying to us, if you know the whole deal, and you're just going to continue to pursue sin, do not hope in any sacrifice for sin. All you can hope in is a fearful expectation of judgment. And we listen to Second Chronicles and we listen to Hebrews 10 and we say, look, as God's people, we understand that he's going to bring justice on the nations. We understand that we are his enemies and that Jesus died for us while we were his enemies. We're not trying to earn anything with God. Jesus came and did that before we did anything for him. He did it. He reconciled us while we were God's enemies. And our response, not trying to earn our way with God or merit anything with God or pay God back, our response is humble faith and serious repentance, knowing the truth and living our lives accordingly.